When Naomi joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Botswana, her boyfriend, the father of her son, was not thrilled to learn about the church's emphasis on the law of chastity. When I joined the church in 2011, I called him and talked to him and told him that now I was joining this church and that I made a covenant with Heavenly Father that if I joined this church, I would obey his commandments. I explained to him the law of chastity. He said, we'll talk about it. He kept saying, we'll talk about it. Since then, 2011, I didn't talk to him much, but I keep telling him about the baby. When the child does this or this, I just call him, though he's not that supportive at times. Naomi's relationship with the father of her son did not survive her conversion and her determination to embrace the law of chastity. She, along with some other women converts in Botswana, has faced a difficult decision. Either adhere to church chastity standards or give up established long-term relationships with boyfriends. In Botswana, a country where cohabitation and children before legal marriage is the norm, other single women in Botswana must make an equally harrowing choice. Adhere to the church's chastity standards, or, given the fewer numbers of single male church members, face the likelihood of never having children at all. In the global church, single saints face real challenges as they navigate societal norms and church standards. I'm Caroline Klein, and you're listening to This Global Latter-day Life. Naomi's story is one of hundreds we've collected as part of Claremont Graduate University's Oral History Projects. Today, we'll be talking about Naomi's oral history and her experiences as a single mother in Botswana. In order to maintain some privacy for Naomi, we've given her a pseudonym, and Snay Bentley is reading the words she spoke in her oral history interview. Our thanks to Snay for lending her voice to help tell Naomi's story. This episode is part two of our series discussing global Latter-day Saints navigating single life. Dr. Tonalyn Ford, who provided terrific commentary on the previous episode, which centered on Anya, a woman in India, is joining us again to talk about the oral histories and share some insights based off the work she has done with global Latter-day Saints. Before we delve into Naomi's story, I want to issue a quick content warning. Her oral history references a sexual assault, but does not provide any details. From a young age, Naomi worked hard. She was the seventh child in a large family in Botswana. And in order to survive, the family needed to grow vegetables on their land. She'd spend her weekends working the land. During the week, she attended school and she was a good student. However, when she was a teenager, a man in town stalked her and sexually assaulted her. She didn't tell the police. She didn't tell anyone. She then found out she was pregnant. When I told my mom I was pregnant, she wasn't angry. She just accepted it. I didn't tell her that I was raped, just that I was pregnant and didn't know the guy. She accepted it and helped me raise the baby. She was just the most beautiful baby. I loved her so much. When she was three months old, she was diagnosed with meningitis because maybe they were saying because of the trauma I had when I was conceiving her. Fortunately, she survived. There were so many kids that were diagnosed with meningitis and some didn't survive. My child was a fighter 
and she inspired me in so many ways. Though her learning disabilities were such a struggle, my mom used to help me out so much with raising her. I was living with my mom at that time. In Botswana, it's very common for extended family members to help raise children. And Naomi's mother played a huge role in her child's early years. Naomi went on to do two years of national service. Think something equivalent to AmeriCorps or Teach for America. As she was serving in the traditional tribal court system, she found out that the man who raped her had died. That set off alarm bells in her head. She immediately went to go get tested for AIDS. I found out I was uh, HIV positive. I tested my daughter. She also was HIV positive. And because I grew up knowing God, I knew God has a purpose in my life. With the support of the family, they knew I was HIV positive. My family was supportive. Botswana has one of the highest HIV rates in the world. It was devastating to find out that this assault had given her and the child this disease. But with strong family support and her Christian faith, she grew up going to a number of Christian churches, she got through this difficult time. She attended university and went into accounting. She was hired by the government and became a school bursar or accountant. When she was transferred to a city hundreds of miles away from her family, she left her daughter in the care of her mother. But she saw her daughter as often as possible on holidays and breaks. In this other city, she met her boyfriend, the father of her son. I was transferred to a particular college. When I was there, that's when I met a boyfriend. This was in 2005. 2006 was when I had my second child, a boy. When I was pregnant with him, another tragedy happened. I lost my job. I had a shortage and I was dismissed from the job. It happened when I was on maternity leave when I was here. When I get there with my baby, that's when I found out I lost my job. It happened because I had a shortage of 1,200 bula. There was no way, no way I could find a job. I came home. And I stayed with my family again from 2007. 1,200 pula is roughly equivalent to 100 U.S. dollars. Since 2007, Naomi has lived in her family home, often running a small tuck shop or grocery store from a building in her front yard when she has the funds to stock it. In 2011, while visiting the capital city, she met Latter-day Saint missionaries and became interested in the church. She investigated for a full year, reading the Book of Mormon in full. Then she decided to join. This decision to join had ramifications on her personal life. When she called her long-distance boyfriend, the father of her son, and told him that she was joining and would be obeying the law of chastity from then on, her relationship, already strained by distance, broke down. They barely talk anymore. Naomi explained that the law of chastity is an enormous challenge for single saints in Botswana. In Botswana, the norm is for couples to cohabitate, have children together, and then eventually legally marry when enough money has been amassed for wedding and bride wealth expenses. Sexual relationships before marriage are not only expected, they're encouraged by parents, friends, and family. 
in our families, let's say I'm my age and don't have a child. My parents would keep encouraging me. Hey, how can I have grandchildren if you don't have a child? Help us out. Even if you're not married, you need a child. So parents will encourage us to have a child, believing that the more you grow old, the more difficulties you will have. So they encourage us to have a child. Those are the differences. They don't even look at getting married first. They just look at getting a child first. They want a child in the family. That's one difference for us. When you have a child, people expect you to live with the boyfriend before marriage. So cohabitation is very common. Those are things that are very, very challenging in our lives. Also challenging is living with the hope and desire to someday find an eternal companion. Naomi longs for a marriage sealed in the temple so she can have that eternal family discussed in so many church lessons. As a single mother, I know that maybe someday God will bless me with a husband who I will be sealed to. And it also keeps me strong. I remember this other time when I had a family home evening with my son and he said, Mom, why are you not staying with Dad? I said, you're not married. He said, no, maybe you won't get married. You, you need to make a way to reach out to him. I said, the only way to do that is to put that into our prayer. Every night we pray for him and that we might be one family. Even with these strains and pressures that Naomi navigates as a single woman, she has found important roles in her ward. Right after she was baptized, she was called to be a counselor in the Young Women organization. So when I was called to Young Women, I didn't know anything about Young Women. I was given a book of instructions and I was like, wow. I was the second counselor. The first counselor and the president were so awesome. We worked together. We held meetings every month. I got to know the programs very well and the things of the church. One thing that kept me monitored was the Handbook of Instructions. I read that book so often. She loved her time in Young Women, but serving as Relief Society president, her next calling was more of a challenge. When I was called to Relief Society, I was so excited. Now it's time for me to meet with the sisters and to get to know them better. I didn't know that it was harder to be a Relief Society president than in Young Women. Because in Young Women, when you plan for activities, they're all excited about the activity. And they'll give you ideas. But as for Relief Society sisters, it's tough at times. Maybe you're trying to organize an activity and they don't come. Sometimes women have so many commitments. In our town, they like to have family meetings, like when they're praying for wages. So... A lot of obligations. And again, they're raising kids and so many have problems. In young women, the girls are so carefree. They're not that hard to manage. Nevertheless, she came to love Relief Society as well, even with its challenges. My experience with Relief Society is quite amazing. I, I got to know the sisters and got to love them. And if they're less active, you learn why they're not coming to church. And at times you found out that some are having the very same challenges that you have. And I can share with them how I manage and try to explain to the sisters. I then realized that I'm solving the problem I have by helping another sister. One of her most powerful spiritual experiences occurred during her first trip to the temple in South Africa. This was a Relief Society temple trip. When we got to the Johannesburg temple, we were sleeping in one room. It was with some of the moments I enjoyed a lot. We didn't sleep that night. 
we were just sharing and talking. Some sisters were sharing with us how they met their spouses and some who belonged to the church longer were sharing their experiences in church. It was quite amazing. And you just, you just feel the spirit when you are with the sisters. You learn different things with the sisters. She has also enjoyed many Relief Society activities over the years. The Relief Society activities were so wonderful. We made a scripture bag. We designed cards for less active members. We designed the most wonderful activity I, des- I enjoyed. We designed a book. Every sister would come with a different recipe, and we combined and bound them and made a book, mostly traditional food. Naomi has emerged as a leader in her ward, as well as a beloved member. There are certainly challenges in her branch, as activity rates are often low. But she has found purpose and identity as a lay minister for the church. Even with this sense of purpose, however, she must navigate her feelings of loss because she's not married, and hope that someday she might find someone and form that eternal family unit she desperately desires. I'd like to say, when I joined the church, the very first thing that I liked was that poster that says families can be together forever. Even before I joined the church, when the missionaries gave me that picture, I used to stick it up. Because I love family, and I love my mom especially, who is late. And when I was taught by the missionaries and they were telling me about how we'll be joined to our family, that was the thing that made me most pleased. I remember when I was in the temple, I witnessed another family being sealed together. And that moment really touched me. And it helped me again to be strong in the gospel. As a single mother, I know that maybe someday God will bless me with a husband who I will be sealed to. And also, it keeps me strong. Tonalyn, welcome. And I'm so glad you're here to talk with us about this oral history, which I found quite poignant on many levels. And also illuminating because it gives us an interesting glimpse into the culture of Botswana, one element of which is that common phenomenon of unmarried motherhood. Tonalyn, is there anything in Naomi's story that struck you? So yeah, what what stood out to me was the theme of Naomi's hope for someday, that she will find um, a companion that that God will bless her with someone that she can be sealed to, and the fact that this gives her strength and allows her to carry on. I think that is definitely a commonality here, and a commonality across the church is this this hope for someday. I didn't sense this in Naomi at all. I, I sometimes will sense in the interviews with Latter Day Saints in North America or even in Australia, in the Mormon Women's Oral History Project, some of those, the resentment of hearing, okay, someday, it's like this consolation prize, and there's a, well, now it's awfully difficult, right? So don't tell me that. (laughs) But I think I find in Naomi, and I find in a lot of women, a, a, a real hope and a real ability to give space for that hope and hold on. I got a similar sense, Tonalyn, when I think of some of the interviews I did with American women, single women, they were not, the ones I'm thinking of were not necessarily comforted by the idea that maybe in the next life, they might be blessed with a spouse or children. 
like you mentioned, this was not necessarily satisfying to them. And so, yeah, so so I appreciate you bringing out the fact that there doesn't seem to to be that tension for Naomi and for, like you mentioned, other global women, perhaps, that this actually was something that was sustaining for them, uh, maybe in a different way than for some American or Western women. And talking about single women, um, now I'm thinking about Botswana. One area of fortuitous cultural overlap between the values of Botswana and typical Western Latter-day Saint values is the emphasis on the role of mother for women. But of course, the LDS pressure to be married first puts women in Botswana in something of a bind because there just aren't that many LDS men to marry in Botswana. And there are also very few non-Latter-day Saint men who would be willing to go along with LDS chastity norms until marriage, right? And so so the LDS women who convert young or who are born into the church are sometimes faced with a really tough option. And the option is A, stick with chastity and hope that a Latter-day Saint man comes along, but face the real likelihood of never finding someone and therefore never becoming a mother which is super hard in Botswana because a woman's identity is very much linked to motherhood. And if you do not achieve motherhood, you're basically sometimes not really considered a full adult. So it's a big deal to be a mom. So that's one option. Option B would be you privilege motherhood and you get pregnant with a boyfriend and you have that baby, but you do so knowing that you're flouting a really important element of LDS sexual ethics. And so Now, I did a bunch of oral histories with Botswana women, and my heart went out to them when I heard about this bind. It is really a hard thing. And I can't help but think about how can our church communities on a local level and our church leadership on a more general level, how can they find ways to make space for women who will never be mothers, who will never be married Are there ways that the church can create and play up meaningful roles and identities for women for whom motherhood is not in the cards? Do you have any thoughts about that, Tonalyn? Yeah, well, you know, and I I will say as, as I give my input here, I'm not saying that I have the answers. I think this probably keeps everyone up at night in terms of local leadership, general leadership, right? How can we do this? Because it, it is, especially when our theology is so focused on the family and so focused on motherhood. So first and foremost, I think being able to value an individual for who they are. I know that it helps me if I'm not considered, I don't really want to be considered as the divorced woman or the single woman, right? I just want to be Tana Lynn. And I want to know that I, I, it's, it's been helpful for me. I have felt in my ward family, in my more recent ward that I've moved into, there has been no question. I felt like my ability to have a calling was not contingent upon my marital status. So I think that's number one, is thinking about how everyone can participate, right? Thinking back to... Elder Ballard's conference talk, the idea that it is not an issue and it shouldn't be an issue for service within the church. The ability for an individual to contribute should not have anything to do with motherhood, aside from the fact that perhaps motherhood would limit someone's ability to participate sometimes, right? 
but it shouldn't in, in any way. And I think you see, I have seen in my own life, a change in the culture of the church in Western society. There's some interesting changes that are taking place, but these changes take place in each family, in each ward, in each state, right? It's a, all of this happens at the root. It's not necessarily that we're, let's wait for the program to come that will allow these women to, as mothers, to feel more at home. I think it's a matter of within our own sphere, what are we doing? And thinking about, am I looking at that person for who they are in terms of their marital status? Or am I looking at this, these people in terms of who they are in the perspective of God and you know their worth in that regard? Thank you, Tonalyn, for all those insights. I absolutely agree that we need to do better on local levels, on every level in terms of creating honored places for single women, for women who aren't mothers. And I think you're so right that assigning callings and and tasks to women should not in any way be based on on marital status. So thank thank you for bringing that up. As I think about Naomi's story, I mean one of the very most poignant parts of it for me is when she does decide to privilege LDS chastity norms over the relationship with the father of her child. And given, admittedly, it was kind of a strained relationship at that point anyway, because they were living in different parts of the country. But it did, her choice to convert and to embrace the law of chastity did pretty much end the relationship. And I actually talked to another woman in Botswana who converted while in a relationship with the father of her children, not married. And it was really, again, this was such a hard issue for her. When I talked to her about her challenges as a Latter-day Saint woman in Botswana, she mentioned this. She And she said, look, I can handle the word of wisdom. And that's a tough one, too, over there because tea is a, is a big element. But she's like, I can handle the word of wisdom. My boyfriend knows he cannot pressure me to drink tea or alcohol. But the real challenge is the law of chastity. That's the challenge for us. And of course, it would be. It's the father of her children. So my question to you, Tonalyn, as I think about these women that are in really hard positions and and how they're navigating Latter-day Saint norms and expectations that are being pitted against cultural norms or familial or romantic expectations, and they're having to navigate this road. And it's a rough one. And I was wondering if in, in your experience doing oral histories with global women and men, if you can think of sort of any similarities, maybe with people in India, of also having to navigate a really poignant place of LDS norms uh, versus cultural norms and the tension it might cause in, in personal relationships because of it. Yes, yes. It's interesting as you talk that the pain of these women in Botswana the parallel that I see in India more often than not is some of the, the issues that take place in terms of actually abuse and some things that, that happen behind the scenes that are just very acceptable in Indian culture and, of course, are not at all all right in the church or in Christian culture in general. So I ache for that, the way that women are navigating, and especially those who come from first-generation families as they're adapting to the different culture in the church. 
But I sometimes see quite a difference in terms of women have to navigate not dating, right? The resistance to, with caste endogamy, the idea that you are preserving this woman, you don't even talk to another boy. You don't, you know, go out with another boy. So it's not, it's quite the opposite. You don't, there's not a pressure for this relationship sexually. It's just simple relationship of let's text or let's talk. And sometimes the church is teaching things that are considered quite scandalous, right? It's the idea that you go, I remember a darling young woman said that I, you know, she said, uh, I said, what about dating? Will you be able to date? And she said, well, actually I've been dating since I was 12. And her idea of dating was actually going to mutual. So the activities combined with the young men in the ward, which is for a culture that is concerned about caste endogamy, that's very scandalous, very problematic. Mm, interesting. And and when you say caste endogamy, let me make sure I understand what that means. Does that, that means marrying within your caste, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So how interesting that, you know, going to mutual was, is almost like an incredibly... I don't know, what would you call, I mean, maybe scandalous or, or like very outside the norm kind of activity for young people, because it means boys and girls mixing possibly of different castes. Is that correct? Yes. Or even just a love marriage mm. taking place, mm-hmm. right? Versus an arranged marriage. A lot of times the, the subtext to that is caste, but it's not always caste. Sometimes it's just the parents want to be able to choose. And if young men and women are interacting, they have this chance of finding a a partner without the parents, Mm, you know, interesting. And and I I will say that there are, there are many, many people that, and probably more often than not, they're second generation, third or fourth generation that push against this idea that definitely encourage their children to date, but there are strict, strict boundaries in terms of any kind of physical. If you think, I think about Bollywood movies a little bit, the resistance to even kissing, you'll see that that's not allowed on the screen, right? So I think about Botswana, this idea of having a child, it's, it's just a very different situation. I do love Naomi's story in terms of the way she has risen to become a lay minister and uh, is such an important member of her community and has found some really important relationships with other Relief Society women and the young women. And so I do I do love. Yes. I mean, she she has had a hard road in many respects, but she has found a real joy in terms of making these connections and and being um, this wonderful, wonderful local leader. So thank you, Tonalyn, so much for all of your wonderful insights and experiences. This has just been a joy to talk to you. I, I want to just add, Caroline, too, because I, I do think I was getting a little negative there. So I want to just echo your positivity there. There is a, a tremendous amount of empowerment that comes with for Latter-day Saints. Empowerment that I think sometimes we in the West take for granted. So... Yes, I, that's something that really does jump out to me as someone who's been 
doing oral histories for a while with with global people that what does not appear to be or, or feel perhaps very liberating to a Western person might in fact be very empowering and liberating uh, when you go to a different part of the world. And so I think sort of having that perspective and, and recognizing the very different contexts people arise from, I think can give us a, a certain kind of appreciation for how um, Latter-day Saint norms and values uh, play out around the world. So thank you again, Tonalyn. Thank you. It's been delightful. One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode. This Global Latter-day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. He is a terrific interviewer, his podcast is beautifully produced, and he features some of the most interesting thinkers out there. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and healthfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts.